Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of Beatles Undercover, where Alan and I will be carrying side A of a mixtape featuring an eclectic mix of Beatles covers spanning the last 60 years. That's right. Now, we always have a gimmick when we do our artist spotlights, and this time we thought, why don't we do covers of a particular artist, and no one has been covered more than the Beatles. I mean, yesterday alone sets the record. Over a thousand, right? Over three thousand. Wow. Yeah, three thousand plus covers of yesterday alone. It's the most most covered song in, in music history. So that is kind of our mindset. And I don't know. I, I for the most part, I picked a lot of covers that I really, really love. Some I would even I, I know it's sacrilege, but some I would even argue maybe as good as maybe even better than the original. Oh, I have a few I like better yeah. than the original. Yeah. I, I do as well, but I also have a couple on here that are, are purely for fun. Um, yeah, we'll have to talk about that <laughs> when we get to your second pick. <laughs> wow. I, I figured, you know, if we have any loyal audience members, that they'll, they'll, they'll forgive us. They'll forgive us, they'll All stick right, with well, us. Um, but everyone needs to hear this at least once in their lives. So, yeah, I... Um, it's worse than uh, Leonard Nimoy's Bilbo Baggins. If oh. that's if that's a hint to anyone as to what is coming down the pike here. <laughs> I love Leonard Nimoy's Bilbo Baggins. The, the Adventures of Bilbo Baggins is one of my favorite novelty tunes. Um, yeah, uh, the one that David's speaking of. It, it was it was a regular regularly played on, on Doctor Demento's show yeah. for a very long time. So, well, I, I will say this, and I agree with you um, because the evidence, of course, is the amount of covers. But I think. Preparing for this episode has proven to me that the Beatles' greatest strength, beyond their musicianship, beyond um, their their brand, their sense of humor, their image, the, their songwriting, yep. is above anything any other band or artist could ever match. And when you can take uh, songs like these, and of course you can take any song, any melody, and you can um, adjust it to different genres of music, but what some of the other artists have done to these songs really shows the versatility in the songwriting and the power of the songwriting. They were master songwriters. They were. Yeah, there's no denying. Um, and, you know, everybody credits Lennon McCartney. At this stage, my favorite songs by the Beatles, very nearly every one is a Harrison tune. So, you know, Ringo... Well, you know, they let him eh, have a few. Yeah, I mean, Octopus's Garden. It's fun. I don't have a cover of it. But... Um, yeah, just they are. Well, I mean, without question, probably probably the mo- most prolific songwriters in, in rock and roll history. When, so. uh, when people ask me who do I think broke up the Beatles, I say George Harrison. And I don't mean that in a sense where he wanted to break up the Beatles. But I really do think, and this is pretty evident if you watch the Let It Be documentary from Peter Jackson, George Harrison really came into his own as a songwriter near the end. And in many ways, was a stronger songwriter during that time period. Right. And Paul and John kind of had an issue with that. They, they're very dismissive of a lot of his ideas that later on became huge um, staples. And so, um, maybe you know, obviously there were a lot of factors, but I think that's what really kind of ticked George off, is that he never got the respect as a songwriter that he deserved. And that's when he started playing with Clapton and some other people. And I think that tension 
Of course, there were others, but that tension to me is probably the biggest reason why the Beatles eventually broke up. I would agree. I mean, everybody blames Yoko, and without well, question, she was with, a factor, without but. question, she was a factor. But no, I, especially Paul. Paul and George's relationship was always contentious. Yeah. And yeah, I, I I would agree with with your analysis one hundred percent. Well, beyond the you know, when you have a thousand covers to choose from, we had to have some sort of criteria. Yes. So I'll tell you mine. Um, there are a lot of really good covers out there, but the artist really didn't do much to make it their own. We've talked about this before. Um, I didn't choose those. I tried to choose songs where the artist changed the genre, made it their own in their own genre, did something interesting with it. You know, not always good, maybe in the case of the one you're going <laughs> to talk about. Um, but yes, it had, to, it had to take it to a different place. Uh, I'm going to talk about this a little bit, but the, the White Album is in my top three favorite albums of the Beatles. Oh, yeah. But I always felt it was a little underbaked. I always felt, with, with some exceptions, there are songs on there that are what they should be, but I felt like a lot of them were almost demo quality. And they just kind of, I don't know if they rushed to get it out. I mean, it's a double album. Some of the stuff could have been pruned. Some of the stuff could have been developed with greater arrangements. You know, when you write a song, when you write anything, sometimes you got to keep working at it. You have a seed of an idea but it takes some time to kind of get it to where it needs to be. And what was nice is hearing some of these White Album songs then finally fleshed out by these other artists to see the potential those songs actually had. Oh, yeah. In fact, I, looking at my list, I have quite a few from the White Album, and that they are arguably some of my absolute favorite songs. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Again, it's the songwriting, but I, I would agree. I mean, I the White Album is up there for me. Um, it's Probably top five. I don't know that it's top three. But, um, yeah, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you could have made a, a really great single album from the songs that were developed back in the USSR, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, just to think of two up the top of my head. Uh, but then you have, like, you know, the ballad of, of uh, what was it, uh, Bungalow Bill? Bungalow Bill. <laughs> you know, honey, Wild Honey Pie. Uh, obviously, Revolution 9 was, was experimental. But you had a lot of stuff there that, uh, you know, it, again, it works. It's in my top three. But I really feel like some of these songs that were somewhat underdeveloped get their due with these covers. So what are one and two? Um, I'd say Revolver and Rubber Soul. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would go uh, Revolver followed by Abbey Road and then then Rubber Soul. It's but, hard because I had Sgt. Pepper and, and Abbey Road's right there, right? You know, it's yeah. difficult to... So to rank them, yeah, it really is. And, and you know, the Beatles—they have three stages to their to their music. Early Beatles, of course, is just classic rock and roll. It's right. entirely different. I and mean, you want to talk about a band that not only experimented but evolved. They in like eight years, yeah. I mean, no less. They they went from you know early rock and roll through the folk era. They they then went into the their their entire study of the you know. In, in India where they, they got very spiritual especially George then you have the psychedelic period and then you have you know kind of a return to rock and roll a, a with Let It Be even though Let It Be wasn't the last recorded it was right. the last release but I mean by the end they were purely classic rock yeah. I mean they they ran the full full gamut it was it's really quite an achievement and you know to actually sit back and study their music from start to finish this was a band that could do anything yeah they no really doubt. could no doubt yeah, so. eight years. That's it. Boggles my mind. I mean, today you have bands, established bands. It'll take four or five years between records. Yeah, uh, but then you have someone like Elton John and, and the Beatles, of course, that uh, put out two, three albums a year. 
sometimes more. Mm-hmm. And it's just crazy to think. And then, and then maybe another reason why they broke up. <laughs> well, it is why they quit touring. Uh, right. Because they couldn't tour at that pace and also be creative and explore the music that they wanted to. Yeah. Well, in fairness, they also couldn't hear themselves performing on stage when they would tour. I right. mean, you know, Beatlemania being what it was, the crowd was so loud they couldn't hear themselves sing. Um, yeah, I, like you, you, you just need my criteria. Um, I, I chose songs that are very different in some respect from the original versions. Um, I do have one or two that are very close, but even they, you know, they, they play with them. One is a duet um, as opposed to, you know, a, a straight song as, as the Beatles recorded it. Um, but yeah, I, I was looking for things that were very different. And it was very hard because I have a lot of favorite Beatles covers that, you know, fundamentally they're, they're just Beatles songs. You know, I, in fact, I, at one point I, I had Pat Benatar's Helter Skelter, which is a rocking, I mean, it, it's just a solid rock tune. I even, I had the Black Keys, the Local Boys, which she said, she, you know, she said, and just, just a number of them. But I, I was looking at it and I, I, yeah, I like you. I just, I wanted to give something that was very different and that's the way I, I lean. So we, we are in agreement on our requisites. Mm-hmm. for this episode. Well, I believe you get to go first. I do. All right. Well, I begin today's episode with what some would argue is the greatest Beatle cover ever recorded. Um, it is also one of the few covers that, again, I, I would argue is far superior to the original version. I agree. Yeah. Um, English singer Joe Cocker's version of With a Little Help from My Friends was just a radical rearrangement of the original. And recorded as a waltz in a slower three-quarter time signature as opposed to the 4-4 beat of the original Beatles version. Um, you know, it used different chords in the middle eight. It featured a lengthy instrumental introduction um, featuring drums by Proko Harum's B.J. Wilson and guitar lines from Jimmy Page. You know, it's, it's Zeppelin playing guitar. Uh, after recording the song, Cocker uh, and record producer Denny Cordell, they, they brought it to Lennon and McCartney, who were so impressed with Cocker's version that they sent him a telegram of congratulations and placed an ad in the music paid papers praising it, actually. Um, Cocker, of course, performed uh, his devotional version at Woodstock. And, um, you know, that performance was included in the documentary film, Woodstock, giving his career a huge boost. Uh, the 25-year-old Cocker, he, he wore a tie-dyed T-shirt. He was drenched in sweat throughout the performance. 
securing his reputation as an entertainer who would give you know his his all on stage. But to me, it's kind of funny. I bet Gen Xers may remember Cocker's performance best by John Belushi's parody of him on oh, Saturday Night Live. I was going to say something different. Wonder Years? Yeah, Wonder yeah, Years. Wonder Years, was, yeah, without question. But do you remember Belushi's yeah, take? I do, I do. It, it is spot on, you know? Right. It, it is so spot on. It's, oh my God, I, I love it. I, I want to watch it right now. Um, but yeah, Cocker's performance, you know, it, his version gained even more fame, like you said, with uh, the Wonder Years. And when Cocker died in 2014, he was 70 years old when he died, McCartney issued uh, this statement regarding his version of the song. He said, it was just mind-blowing. Totally turned the song into a soul anthem, and I was forever grateful for him for having done that. And that's a great example of what I was talking about, because the Beatles are the Beatles, um, and, and the songwriting right, can go anywhere. As performers, they're limited to what they can do. Yep. And none of the Beatles were going to be able to perform the song as a soul song the way that Joe Cocker oh, no. performs it. Not a chance. So that's a great example of how this, this music can just be um, applied to all sorts of different genres and styles. Um, can you name the other Beatles cover that he also performed? Uh, she came in through the bathroom window. Exactly. And, and yep. talking about, again, the songs that were quite white-baked. Um, they had a bunch of leftovers at the end of Abbey Road that George Martin, as a genius, found a way to stitch them together yep. on side B of Abbey Road. And so the actual version of I came in through the, or she came in through the bathroom window is only like a minute and a half. Yeah, and that, Joe Cocker fleshes it out and makes it a song. Yeah. So. No. Yep. Uh, he, was, he was legendary. Yep. yep. As are the Beatles. So. Yeah, this is one I also like better than the original. Yeah. Okay. Nothing against Ringo's vocal vocal uh, stylings on no, <laughs> I, what, my friends, but you know what what Ringo does with the song is you know it's fun you know it's just a quirky number that transitions from Sgt. Pepper's into the rest of the album but yeah Joe Cocker here I mean it's just th this is a song for the ages and I just figured this is how I wanted to lead off the the episode yeah, and like you said this is the one that most people probably recognize yeah uh, if not from all the other stuff from from wonder years of course and then can you name the other Beatles song that was the title sequence of another hit from the 1980s that may have gone into the 90s the song was obladi oblada oh my god i'm i i'm totally blanking but i know Life goes on. Life goes on. Corky. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh man, what a great show. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I could see it in my mind the moment you asked the question. I believe I they used the original Beatles version. I think on. I'm not sure. I'll have to go back and check. I haven't watched I'm it. Pretty of sure they did. Yeah. 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 All right. Your turn. Okay. So uh, I, I'm not sure, of course, how we're going to sequence this, but this would be a great one to start the mixtape off. And that is Earth, Wind, and Fire's Gotta Get You to My Life. my life, 
Now, what's interesting is the Got to Get You Into My Life, which was on Revolver, which was kind of their really first experimental record. The song itself, the Paul McCartney version, really feels ahead of its time. It was it was actually released later as a single in the 70s and actually hit the top 40. Yeah. And so I remember hearing it as a kid thinking it was a, a more current song. And then when I got into the Beatles um, as a youth and I bought Revolver and I heard it and I was very confused because I'm like, what? you know, this album came out in 1966. This doesn't sound like 1966. So it's one of those Beatles songs I really think was ahead of its time. Um, I give props to Paul for trying this. Um, kind of, and his is a little more poppy, not quite as soul, but it's got the horns, right? That oh, wasn't our feature on Beatles songs yeah, um, no. much at all. And uh, I think it's, it's great, but this may be one where I kind of like Earth, Wind & Fire's version better because they this is their wheelhouse. This is their genre, and they really take the song and they make it their own. Um, it went to number one on the Billboard Soul Chart. And it went to number nine on the Hot 100. This is in 1978. It's on the same album. It's on September, the September album. It also won Grammy for the uh, for Best Instrumental Arrangement. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Sgt. Pepper's movie. Yeah. Um, by the Bee Gees. I think it was the Bee Gees that yes. were behind the, the, the film. If, if memory serves, they actually perform, Earth, Wind & Fire performs this in the film as well. They might. I, I, I've never seen I've, I've never seen it either, but I vaguely recall seeing the soundtrack at one point, and I, I, you're right, it is on September, but pretty sure it's found in the film as well. That is a movie that I've always wanted to see, but I'm so afraid to watch Yeah, I'm, it. I was always afraid to watch it. <laughs> no, I just, to me, it's, it's going to just, oh, it's going to be so hard to get through, but... Um, but yeah, this is a perfect example where the song, I mean, they, they, they mix up, uh, obviously, the rhythm. Uh, they play around with, with the refrain a little bit. Um, of course, the, the rhythm section, the brass section is just incredible. The whole thing is just the only way. I mean, it's earth, wind, and fire. It's incredible. Um, just a little tidbit about the song, um, and this is going to be a common theme, I think, today. Uh, McCartney, McCartney finally admitted that the song is not about a woman. Do you know what it's about? No. It's about pot. Is it? He discovered when he discovered <laughs> marijuana, he wrote an ode to marijuana because he wanted to get it into his life as much as possible. Oh my god! That is, so this is an ode to marijuana. That is great. I that is a piece of trivia I've never heard. So I um, and, and, you know I've heard it said about you too that um, you know any song that Bono writes could either be applied to a woman or to God. With the Beatles, any song they write could be applied towards a woman or drugs. Oh, without question. <laughs> so. And like today when I was listening to, I was listening to a, a Day in the Life. No, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds I was listening to today. And I remember they denied that it had anything to do with LSD. Oh, yeah. That Julian had what colored a, a picture in picture, school and yeah. John put it on the refrigerator. Um, no, no, it was. <laughs> well, without question. Of course it was about yeah. LSD. That was on purpose. So I think that's going to be a common theme where a song that the people assume is about a woman really is about a chemical. Well, I don't think anybody <laughs> thinks Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is about a, a woman. Well, <laughs> so, no, well. In fairness. He's, you know, Julian supposedly said right. the woman in the picture was named Lucy and he had drawn diamond stars in the sky. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. That's my second pick. I'm really excited about it. I love that song. Okay. Well, you... you Gave me the perfect lead in. I don't know if that was deliberate or not. Um, but uh, William Shatner. 
Shatner is many things to us. I mean, he's a man newly recovered from a nervous breakdown who becomes convinced that a monster only he sees is damaging the plane he's flying on in Nightmare 20,000 Feet, one of the very best Twilight Zone episodes. He's, of course, Captain Kirk on Star Trek. He's that affable dude who seems content just, you know, jawing with his 1.6 million fans all day and night on Twitter. And most recently, he's the first actor turned astronaut, you know. But, But clearly... He is not a rock singer at all. In 1968, folks, one of the most famous and popular sci-fi actors of all time released his debut album called The Transformed Man, which included his take on the 1967 classic Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, originally found on the Beatles' groundbreaking Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band album. In a boat on a river With tangerine trees and marmalade skies Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly A girl with kaleidoscope eyes Cellophane flowers of yellow and green Towering over your head Look for the girl with a sun in her eyes, and she's gone! She's gone. She's gone. Now, Dave just gave you the story. John said that he had no idea that he'd written a song whose root letter spelled out LSD. Uh, he, he said that... I, I believed him for a time when I was really? young and naive. Yeah, I, I never bought into that story. Never. Um, yeah, like Dave said, he said the title was actually inspired by a picture that his son Julian had drawn with the same title. Whether or not that is true, okay, if you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, this song is trippy as hell, to say the least. Just listen to the lyrics yeah, and you know. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's... It, it is kaleidoscope eyes yeah. it says it all rocking horse people yes yeah. eating marshmallow pies <laughs> so it, it's one of the greatest auditory spectacles in the Beatles catalog though yeah I mean John when he would get experimental I mean he just he can blow you away I mean Strawberry Fields Forever is another great example I mean it's just what he was able to achieve musically is just you know it, that alone has stood the test of time but Shatner's version on the other hand <laughs> It's, it is a campy mix of spoken word and outer space-like echo effects. Okay, I don't know and how, overacting. Oh, if yeah. you thought that he overacted in, in Star Trek and other uh, TV series and movies, I'm hoping it's intentional. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I have to believe it's, it's a tongue-in-cheek type of performance. I would here. certainly hope so, but I, you know, knowing Shatner, who the hell knows? But the song, it also features a group of female vocalists, okay, who sing the chorus as if they're part of an intergalactic Vegas review. It's just, it is a mess. It is, it, it, but it's, it is a 
fun mess, which is why I did not feel bad about including it. I feel bad that some of you may have to endure listening to it, but it is certainly one that, you know, is just, it's unlike the original, which was, which was my requisite. The audience has a question for you. Okay. Because if you were to take the top 10, maybe even top five most popular Beatles covers, one of those would probably be Elton John's version of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Why did you choose this version over Elton John's? Well, Elton's is not terribly different from the Beatles. Good answer. You know, I, we, we, we've already kind of stated our, our rationale for the episode. Uh, El, Elton's is a powerhouse. I mean, it was a huge hit. But, yeah, it, it's it's essentially the same song. So I was looking for things that were radically different, and this one, folks, oh, yeah. is radically different. Um, yeah, I, his version, Shatner's version of this song, it received major airplay, as I said, from Dr. Demento. And if that, you know, that alone should tell you everything you need to know. The last verse especially, okay, picture yourself on a train on the station. It, it's just, it's something to behold. I mean, it sounds like Shatner has gone certifiably insane Sort of like he did in that classic Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> so um, he doesn't even stay on rhythm with the song. He's behind by about two measures. Oh yeah, it, it's <laughs> as, as I said, it's a mess, but it's a beautiful mess. So I, I had to include it. All right, that is my number two. You Sorry, did, see, folks. I saved I saved my weird one for the very very end. You, yours, you? got yours out of the way. Here. Yeah, I just I figured just throw it in there. <laughs> if people continue listening to the episode, then then we're know, good. We're good. We're good. So. All right. Well, my next one is an example that I was talking about at the beginning where we took a song that maybe is a little bit undercooked on the White Album and was fleshed out uh, by a band who actually had a hit with this song. And I'm talking about Dear Prudence by Susie and the Banshees. Banshees, of course, was, was more of an alternative band in the 80s in the U.S., and so a lot of people didn't know them in, until later. But in the U.K., they had a, a presence, and this song actually was their highest-charted single and went to number three, yeah. their, their version of it. Um, the original off the Beatles' White Album was written in India. You mentioned that they spent time in India for Mia Farrow's sister. Mia Farrow's sister, Prudence Farrow, was hanging out with them, and as there were all sorts of people, of course, hanging around, and she apparently became quite obsessed with her meditation to the point where she took it so seriously and she was so obsessive about it. She wouldn't leave her dorm or tent or wherever, whatever they were staying in. She would not leave. She could basically eat, sleep and meditate. And one of the leaders of this retreat approached uh, John and, um, and George and asked if they would try and maybe coax her out a little bit into the group and make sure she's OK, which is what they did. And in the process of that, John wrote this song for her. So Dear Prudence is actually about um, this woman who is kind of refusing to come out of her shell and, and join the, the, the social scene there in, in India. 
Um, Susie and the Banshees actually had, had played the song um, quite a bit, I think, um, live, but hadn't actually recorded it. And there was a time period where, and a lot of people don't know this, but Robert Smith actually joined the band to fill in for, I can't remember his name now, but uh, had, had some substance abuse issues. And so Robert Smith stepped in. And so the, I like the idea of covering this song. And, and Susie, Sue felt like it was a little bit unfinished, like I mentioned. And this is the only one because, and this breaks my heart, but Robert Smith is just not a big Beatles fan, um, especially like the White Album. He hates the White Album. Really? And this was the only song he would agree to cover. So they went with this one. Um, but I, as I mentioned, I love the White Album for its diversity. Um, but I'm glad they took this one because I do think this is a great example of what a little bit of an arrangement, some a little more instrumentation. I mean, John plays it pretty straight with a guitar. It's pretty pretty basic, and that's fine. Sim- you know, I like minimalism sometimes, but I really like what Susie and the Banshees said, did this. What do you What do you think of it? Well, I, th- I think it's a brilliant rendition. I, I've always liked Susie and the Banshees. I mean, they uh, they they were essentially the female equivalent of The Cure. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. one, yeah, they toured together. Yeah, they, one of the they were same. friends. They were very yes. good friends. Yeah. Um, no, I, I really enjoyed uh, this version. Dear Prudence, I agree, it's it's very minimalistic, but I it is one of my favorite songs on the White Album. I just think it's a beautiful song. Oh, melody, it is. Sure you is. Know? Yeah. So, yeah, and I, I think they not only do justice, I think it's a better version than the Beatles, again. Um, no, it's a great choice. Absolutely. So... All right, your next one. All right. Well, my next one also comes from the White Album. Uh, This was a 1971 single that resulted from a fruitful partnership between Lena Horne and Hungarian guitarist Gabor Zabo. Now, I I have to say, when I saw this on your list, I had never heard this version before. I've never heard it before. And I saw Rocky Raccoon, and then I saw Lena Horne. And I said, okay, this may be a little more shocking than the... William Shatner version, but no, it was actually no, very good. I, I love it. Was very, very I good. I love this version. Yes. It, it, to me, it, I, I can listen to this all day. I really could. Now, somewhere in the black mining hills of Dakota, there lived a young boy named Rocky Raccoon. One day his woman run off with another guy Hit young Rocky in the eye Rocky didn't like that He said, I'm gonna get that boy So one day he walked into town And booked himself a room in the local saloon Rocky Raccoon Checked into his room Only to find Gideon's Bible Rocky had come Equipped with a gun To shoot off the legs Of his rival His rival it seemed Had broken his dreams By stealing the girl Of his fancy Her name was McGill She called herself Lil But everyone knew the 45 that this was on uh, both both tracks on the 45 were called from their one album together um, it was titled Lena and Gabor the A side the single uh, is a by the numbers cover of 
the Legrand standard, watch what happens. But yeah, the B-side is by far a more interesting track, and, and it is, as Dave said, a cover of the Beatles' Rocky Raccoon. Oh, you know, Lena's, Lena Horn is slightly out of water here, but in no way, I mean, this is not uh, exactly Ella Fitzgerald fumbling through sunshine of your love. <laughs> okay, you ever heard that one? I haven't. Oh, that one, that one's Please, please don't. I, and everything that Ella's ever done is great, so I don't want to ruin that okay. streak for myself. I, Ella's... I can't imagine her doing cream. Yeah, Ella is one of my personal favorites, but, you know, well, it's going to make okay. the alternates list now. Oh, boy, so. oh, boy. But, um, you know, the best part, though, of, of this particular cover is that the song is transformed from a mock Appalachian acoustic ditty to this slinky, slow-burning funk track, you know? And and it's a pretty great Lena Horne vocal on a funk version of a Beatles cover. I mean, it, it's it it's mind-blowing, honestly. I, I love this song, this cover. Lena and Gabor, the entire album, it's really an unexpected delight. I mean, it captures a soulfulness and a sass that's largely absent from Lena Horne's previous efforts. And the sass, you get that very quickly on this particular cover. Uh, the candy-coated orchestral settings on the album also afford her an opportunity to kind of step out of that elegant but often stuffy refinement on her classic LPs and, you know, kind of let down her hair. Interestingly, Rocky Raccoon is one of four Beatles covers on that album. Oh. She actually covers three others. She covers Something, In My Life, and The Fool on the Hill. But what is most surprising, given the four titles... Rocky Raccoon is the best of her four covers. Yeah, I, it's, I, it's I can just, believe that because it, it's such an unusual choice, but she pulls it off. She does. She does. And I just, I, I had to include it. And yeah, I was wondering if you had heard it or not no. before. I, I don't remember the first time I heard it or where I was, but I've, I've known this song or her, her version of it for some time. And it's it's always been one that I can go back to. And it's just, I mean, it's jazzy. It's funky. It's it's just, it's very soulful, but it's, it's wholly original. I mean, it's it's totally unlike anything else I think she had ever recorded. Oh, it's a great choice. If you would have handed me an, an entire list of the entire Beatles catalog and I would have ranked the songs I would expect covers to be used on this show, like Rocky Raccoon and Wild Honey Pie would have been the very bottom. Yeah, without, <laughs> but I'm glad. Without they question. It. They did it. <laughs> All right, uh, right, 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 right. So, oh, this next one, I'm really excited about this next one because we were just talking about Ella. See, what a great transition over to my next pick. Oh, we're doing well. We're doing great. Okay. Um, Paul wrote this next song uh, right after I Want to Hold Your Hand hit number one in America. He all of a sudden had this pressure now to, I mean, you know, if, it, if you don't have anything to prove at all, then there's no pressure, right? But once you become this phenomenon and everybody is talking about you, you feel like you don't want to be this one-trick pony. And so he really felt like he had to kick it up a notch and continue to pump out the hits. And um, although Paul likes to allow listeners to determine their own meanings to his songs, he does draw the line when people speculate that this next song was written about prostitution. <laughs> Can't Buy Me Love, he said, has nothing to do I know. with prostitution. So many people think that it, it does, yeah. It, it just, it, it's about material wealth versus love, right? And so Ella Fitzgerald, I, I, when I came across this a few years ago, I'm like, Ella Fitzgerald doing Can't Buy Me Love? Like, I'd never heard a Beatles cover from Ella Fitzgerald. Man, she just hits it out of the park on this. She does. Buy me love 
Again, another example of how this songwriting just can be applied to so many genres. Um, she made this in her own swing style. Um, it went to number 34 in the UK, so it was a single over there. And like I said, a lot of times she's my favorite like vocalist, not just jazz vocalist, one of my favorite vocalists of all time. You know, anyone who hasn't really listened to her, and I, I pin them down and force them to listen to any Ella Fitzgerald song. I'm like, you have to listen to the subtleties in, in the rhythm, just in her voice. We're talking just her voice now. She uses her voice as an instrument like no one else does. The subtlety in her rhythm, her tone, phrasing, the control she has over it, the emotion she can show oh, yeah. in her voice. Um, I mean, in this song, she changes key mid-phrase. Uh, she was a true genius. You know, I almost used her in our last episode. Yeah? Have you ever heard Too Darn Hot by her? I have not. I don't oh, think I've too darn her. Her. We'll, we'll have to throw that on the okay. audience. Yeah, too, yeah. But, it, but it, it's a fun, fun song. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have her catalog to the extent of, I mean, I never got into Ella Fitzgerald where she became one of my standard go-tos. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, anyone that listened to the to our Valentine's Day special knows that, you know. Right. Yeah, you revere her, but you're, but, but, you're but, not, not a jazz guy per se, so. And I like it. It's just, but when I, anytime I hear, of course, I love her Christmas stuff and I and I have a few CDs of, of her best stuff. And anytime I listen to it, I pick up something else, but it's just the control over her voice emotionally and technically, um, the character, the subtlety, uh, again, it's it's just unlike anything you normally hear from anybody. I can't think of too many artists that can match that. Well, I, you know, she had, she went by many titles. I mean, all the great artists have a title that is attributed to them. I mean, I, they just do. She was always the first lady of song, and, and rightfully so. Yep. I mean, she is arguably probably the greatest female vocalist in the history of popular music. So... Yeah, no, I'm I'm right there with you. I love Ella, and yeah, can't buy me love. It is it is a classic. And she covered that the same year that the song came out. So yeah. talk about it wasn't like a cover. I'm not sure what year she passed away. I can't believe she lived that long past this. Yeah, I can't remember. Um, you know, it may have been in the 70s at some point. But for her to be of an advanced age and to be able to sing again, you can't tell that it isn't 20 year old Ella Fitzgerald singing. It's yeah. great stuff. All right, well. My next one, this is one of my absolute favorites that I brought to the episode today. All right. Regina Spector, she sings the most haunting rendition of While My Guitar Gently Weeps I have ever heard. But it is just, it's hauntingly beautiful. I look at you all, see the love there that's sleeping, while my guitar gently weeps. I look at the floor and I see 
her version of the George Harrison anthem, it's arranged by Dario Marianelli, and it finds her singing over a web of string instruments. Uh, the track climaxes with a solo performed on the shamisen, which is a three-string Japanese lute, and it ends with a quiet piano coda. Uh, the track is featured on the soundtrack to Kubo and the Two Strings, which is an animated film I've not seen. I, I want to, it, it, especially having heard this song. And, and That sounds familiar. Was it up for an Oscar? Because we watch all the Oscar shorts. Um, I, I believe, well, it, it, wasn't, a, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a short. Oh, it wasn't a short. No, this is a okay. full-length feature hmm. film. came out in 2016. Um, I, I've seen the trailer for it. It, it looks amazing. And it, it, it has almost a perfect score on Rotten Tomatoes, but hmm. I've, I've not seen it. Um, but, yeah, director Travis Knight uh, of of the film, he explained to Spectre that he was thinking of this song as a love story to a child from his mother. Okay, and um, he he explained that the mom is trying to to kind of imbue the child with as much strength and preparation to live his life before she has to leave the world because generations, of course, leave and the next generation takes over. So Spectre's recording it, it has lullaby elements to it. But it also has strength. I mean, you have to be strong and carry on. The way that Travis described it to Spectre, his idea for the boys' choir, because there is a, a choir that, that shows up near the end of the song, the Asian instruments carry the song through, and then the orchestra kind of sweeps in, and then there's this boys' choir that, that just comes in and at the very end. He said it's almost like the, the child then taking on the song uh, of the mother and, and being the one to carry on the story. Um, again, I've not seen the film, but I mean, just everything that I, I learned about the song, you know, preparing for the episode, I certainly want to. But yeah, this cover, I mean, it is actually a surprisingly apt take too on Harrison's classic composition, which originally took its inspiration from the Eastern philosophy book, I Ching. Uh, Harrison, of course, he converted to Hinduism and uh, was incredibly spiritual. Um, and, you know, it uses a lot of non-Western instruments, as I said. It gives the track new life within the context of what Regina Spector is doing here. And her her voice, oh, good Lord. I've, I've raved about her in past episodes. I'm a huge Regina Spector fan. Her voice, I mean, it just breathes new life into this beloved classic. As I said, hauntingly beautiful. It's just, this version is sonically done in the world of the film. And, you know, the film, as I understand, it's basically a samurai movie. It's all Asian instruments, Sweeping orchestra at the very end, voice choir. It, it, it's just, you, you have to hear this song. To, to It's going to blow you away. I mean, first listen to this. I, While My Guitar Gently Weeps may be my favorite Beatles song. It is my favorite yeah. Beatles. It, 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 if it's not number one, it's a very close number two. And, you know, I listened to this version and I just, just goosebumps. I mean, it was so incredibly different and so beautiful that I just... I, I can't get enough of it. Yeah, it's my favorite Beatles song. I had not heard this before. You introduced it to me this week, and I um, I, and I love Regina Spector. So when I saw the two, I'm like, this is going to be interesting because Regina Spector is a, is a piano. Right, she's a pianist. Uh, a yep. pianist. And I could not imagine this song without guitar. I mean, it's famous, obviously, not only for George Harrison's guitar, but Eric Clapton, who also played on the track. And I'm like, how? I mean, I, I just she's just going to have somebody play guitar. Is it going to be piano based? And so again, what was the instrument that was being played? Uh, it, the, the shamisen. It was very yeah, obviously a, Asian sounding. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. And I wasn't sure at first if I was going to like it. But you're right. She pulls it off in a very, very different way. Yeah. Oh, it's it's phenomenal, guys. Uh, it, Thumbs up on that one. Yeah. I. This is the first time hearing it. I, you know, 
shoot us an email. Let us know what you think. But I, I, I love this version. I, I was so excited to bring this one to the episode. So that's my number three. Anything George would have liked it. I just read an article about him this week where he, um, obviously he's passed, but it was an interview before he was passed talking about, kind of reminds me a little bit of Billy Joel's Still Rock and Roll to Me, where he was talking about how they make music for certain generations oh. and how he feels that's a bunch of BS. That you, as you grow old, your body grows old, but your spirit and your mind stays the same age, which is why, you know, we still feel like teenagers, even though we're clearly not. It's why the 80s were, you know, 20 years ago and the 90s were 10 years ago still. Exactly. (laughs) And so so when people ask him, you know, when they they would ask him about newer music and so forth, and they would say, well, this really isn't made for your generation. It really, you know, bugged him because he he felt that music is music and it it doesn't, it doesn't really need to be constrained to ages, but that's the way it's marketed. Yeah, it is. So I think he would have really liked this. I think he would have loved it. I stand corrected. This was my number four. So, okay. We are, we're making good time. We're making good time. By the way, Ella died in 96. Really? That late? And she was born in in 1917. So she, she lived to a a ripe old age, but 79, you know, yeah, yeah. So she, um, yeah, so she wasn't as old when she when she performed in '64. But okay, for whatever reason, I thought she was older than that. Yeah, well, at the time. Okay. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't think she made it into the '90s. Well, yeah. Good. Yeah, good, good for her. Long life. All right. All well, right. My next one. You you know uh, the audience may ask me the same question that I ask you about Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds because I chose Come Together. Come Together. I like Come Together, but it's not one of my favorite Beatles songs. I don't put it up there in the in the top third necessarily. It's probably somewhere in the middle third for me. Lower middle third at that, yeah, for for me right. personally. And and of course Aerosmith um, had a hit with with their cover of this song, so most people yeah. probably would have expected the Aerosmith version. As did Michael Jackson. Yes, that's so, correct. Yeah, yeah he yeah. had a huge hit with it as well. But um, again, I feel like the Aerosmith version is pretty close to the original. I mean, no, it's the same. Yeah. Okay. So you're with me on that. Um, Soundgarden. I came across a version of of Soundgarden doing "Come Together." It's another. A lot of these covers, um, the bands would 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 play live. Uh, and then, of course, a lot of bands throw a few covers out when they play live. Um, and once in a while, they just really kind of like the arrangement they came up with, and they'll record it sometimes for an album and a single, sometimes just uh, as a B-side. And that's what the case was here. Uh, it, it appeared as a B-side um, to, to one of their tunes. This was actually 1990. Soundgarden's Come Together. The song itself, the original, was started when Lennon attempted to pen a campaign song for counterculture leader Timothy Leary. Uh, 
who planned to run for governor of California. Really? This started as a campaign? It did. And the idea was that wow. uh, toward the end of the 60s, there was a lot of progression. There was, a, of course, a, a big progressive movement. But it began to splinter a little bit, as, as you see anytime any movement gets power. Um, you see the different elements start to turn on each other and want to put their agenda above the other agenda. And Lenin's idea and Leary's idea was that all of these progressive forces need to come together. Huh. And so come together over me. Uh, it had nothing to do with I was going to say, <laughs> Paul's if, dead. If, if, you, if you go into the whole Paul is <laughs> dead theory, this song is one of the, the big, big. Right. This was, sim- this was simply everyone. He went, the campaign song was to rally around Timothy Leary, who was a big leader of the progressive movement in the 60s, and support him for his bid for governor. Um, and so you know, working together as opposed to, to infighting. Uh, I don't think it ever happened. I'm not even sure if he ever ran for governor. But uh, the song eventually made its way onto Abbey Road, you know, in a slightly different form. Um, the Soundgarden single, Hands All Over, that was the, the single. This is the B-side of that single. Um, the band covered the Beatles actually quite a bit. There's a version of Everyone's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey. I Before I went with alternate, you know, radically yeah. different versions, I had that on my list. Which yeah. is another kind of undercooked song from the White Album. Right. Um, they also had Dear Prudence, uh, Ticket to Ride, A Day in the Life. So these are all songs they covered really? in concert. Yeah. I've, I've so Chris Cornell was a big many. Beatles fan, huh. as was Kurt Cobain. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and in fact, I, I read something uh, today where it talked about how he, you know, everyone wants to attribute grunge. Oh, I know what it was. Keith Richards said that he felt Exiled in the Mainstream was the first grunge album. Okay. Because they tried to make make it so it wasn't so polished and so forth. And a lot of uh, grunge artists at the time did not want to pay homage to the classic rockers. They wanted to kind of remove themselves from that. And so they cited all sorts of alternative influences. Um, But classic rock was obviously a huge influence for grunge. And Kurt loved the Beatles and loved John Lennon. And, of course, Chris Cornell clearly loved the Beatles, too. Um, I'm not, I don't like heavy metal. Um, I do like hard music, though, and so I always kind of liked grunge because it had that intensity, but it wasn't necessarily metal. And I, I like some metal. I like Metallica. I have a, a, actually kind of a metal song coming up here, but I like this because they take the song, they add a, it, this. It's hard to even, you have to listen to it, of course. I'll, I'll play a, a, a spot of it, but it's just just hard guitar, hard distorted guitar they're, they even what melody the song has to begin with, they strip that back even more, and it's just just brute force. Oh yeah. Now it, it I, I I had never heard it until you shared your your list with me. It it is it's, it's a hard rocker. I mean it is it is fantastic. So that's it. All right, that's all for Soundgarden. Well, okay. Well, we are going from very hard to easy listening. <laughs> so, um, and this was a late edition. I was not going to include this, and then I thought the better of it. I thought it, you have to. I didn't, it, 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 it. What am I? What am I trying to say? Um, this was what started um, the musical careers of Richard and Carrie Carpenter, and I thought. You know, really? Yeah. Is this song? Is this song? Huh. And I, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I figured I had to go with it. I'm talking about Ticket to Ride. I think I'm gonna be sad. I think it's today. The boy that's driving me mad is going away. 
Honestly, name another band that has released a cover of a Beatles classic as their debut 45. Yeah, I can't think of any. I mean, it, it's, it's audacious, you know, and it, it kind of shows the kind of musical confidence that Richard and Karen had from the very start. Richard was 23, and Karen was still a teenager. She was 19 years old when Ticket to Ride was released on the, as the Carpenter's first A&M single. If, if you listen uh, to the song, it, it, is, it is so different from what the Beatles had imagined. Um, it starts like this. Listening to Ticket to Ride on the, on the radio one day in 1969, Richard just kind of thought to himself this would make a good ballad. And, and I mean, there's no backbeat at all. Yeah, none. In the song. None at all. Yeah, he, he thought it would make a good ballad, and the duo's melancholy interpretation of this song was kind of perfect, really, because it coincided with the breakup of the Fab Four. And this came out as the band was breaking up. Interesting. You know? And it brought to light the song's somber meaning. You know, as arranged by Richard Carpenter, the song became the, the plaint of a cast-off lover with, with the opening line, I think I'm going to be sad, being sung repeatedly as the track fades. And it, it's a downer, but it's a beautiful song. So maybe it's, it's Karen's voice, of course. It's well, yeah, they talk about another just incredible vocalist. Um, you may not know this, but was it just released at the breakup of the Beatles, or did he choose to record it around the same time? And so when they when she's singing this, she's singing with the idea of the band well, breaking I, apart. I don't know that she's thinking of the band at all. Okay. Um, but but it, it was timed in such so a way. It was just released. It, yeah, it, it was, was just, a coincidence. Yeah, yeah, it was just purely coincidental, but it, it, it worked. And uh, a lot of people, uh, apparently, um, you know, they, they saw or they read into the song that she was singing to the Beatles as they broke up. Um, yeah, it was, it was released as the duo's first single. Uh, without the album track's introductory 12 measures, you'll, you'll hear that, of course, in the version we play, Ticket to Ride became the Carpenters' first charting single. It was on Valentine's Day, 1970, that the Carpenters' Ticket to Ride entered the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, five weeks later, it peaked at number 54. Didn't get that high. Um, and then, you know, it, it began its slow descent and eventual exit from the, the bestseller list. Six months earlier, A&M Records had issued the duo's debut album. It was titled Offering, originally. Um, but on the strength of the single, they reissued the album uh, a little while later, and they retitled the album, but new cover art uh, on it, and, and it, it became, the album itself became Ticket to Ride. Okay. So they changed the title of the album. Um, but, um, yeah, in fact, they it was really, I think, after the, the massive success of, of their Close to You album. That's when A&M, I think, renamed uh, the earlier release, Ticket to Ride. Um, but, yeah, the, the first Carpenter's retrospective, folks, it, it's titled The Singles, 1969 to 1973. Um, it featured an amended version of, of Ticket to Ride with a new lead vocal by Karen Carpenter. Um, I'm going to choose to include that one because I much prefer her vocal track, on, on the remix uh, that was on that uh, singles uh, collection. But it is, it's just such a beautiful song. And being their first album, it is the least well-known album by 
uh, the carpenters. And really, people should give it a, a look because they do a number of things. And for one thing, Richard uh, and Karen both they share lead vocals hmm. on that album. You know, starting with album, starting with their second release. You know, Karen was the the vocalist. But yeah, on this one, Richard Richard has quite a, a lot of singing duties himself. Well, if I remember my Carpenter's history, she was never meant to be the front person. Correct. Um, she was the drummer yep. and, and was supposed to sing back, back up, but uh, they encouraged her to step out front when they realized what she had. Yeah, and from that moment on, and yeah, she's, as you said, one of the greatest vocalists in music history. Why they're not in the Rock Hall yet, I don't know. I mean, maybe they're too soft for the hall, but they should be in there. They absolutely I mean, it's should. still rock. It is. It, it's rock and roll. It's still rock and roll. It I'm is. Sorry. I, I, you know, I, they are a punchline. When we did our Guilty Pleasures playlist, we talked about this. They are a punchline to a lot of people. I don't yeah, understand I just, why. I don't agree with that at I, all. I, I, can see how some, I can see how some bands I respect are, not in this case. I yeah. don't even see the argument. No. And, I, you know, the Carpenters, as I said during that episode, it always reminds me of, um, you know, someone in my past, especially. I, I just, I, I love the Carpenters and I, this was a late edition. I was not going to include it. And then I thought the better of it. So. I mean, they're, they're a huge influence, believe it or not, an alternative music of the 80s and 90s because a lot of, in fact, there was a, a, a tribute album where a lot of alternative artists in, in the 90s, I think we had it at FAL, where they, um, um, you know, paid homage to the Carpenters because oh, yeah. they grew up listening. Sonic Youth, you know, grew oh, up Sonic listening. Youth, yeah, Sonic Youth are huge Carpenters, Carpenters fans. So to yeah. say that they're just a guilty pleasure is a misnomer. Totally. I agree. All right. Well, we talked about, you talked about the different phases of the Beatles, and the earliest phase, it's basically classic rock and roll. Um, the Beatles were, it, it, it always, it boggles my mind that you had the amount of talent that you had in this small little coastal, coastal or what do you call it, um, port city in, in England of Liverpool that happened to, you know, John and Paul met each other at a picnic and... You know, they pulled this kid who was like 14 years old, George Harrison, into the band. And, of course, Ringo what didn't, didn't join till later. But it amazes me that you had that talent. But then on top of that, they lived in this little port town where they got music that most people in England did not get because yes. the ships would come across and American records would be on board and they would be able to buy up these singles when they came across from the ocean. And so it, it, the Beatles took all this early American rock and roll and they added their own spin to it. So even though it sounds a lot like early rock and roll, it was still very much the Beatles. That, that, the whole new sound that they talk about in 1964 in America, of course, when they introduced themselves officially on the Ed Sullivan show. It was, my dad talks about that. It was a completely different sound. Yeah. Now, we look back at it. I did at the time. And I'm sure people today or kids today probably don't hear much of a difference between it. And other you know songs of the era slightly before that, but um, yeah, it, w it was huge. And you know, some of the albums are a little bit weak early on because they do a lot of cover songs. I think that was more the the record company than them because they had plenty of songs to record. But I think the record company, for whatever reason, they, they did this a lot back then. They wanted to do some covers to build up some credibility. And so you have you know, I, I listen to them occasionally, but they're not you know most of the with the exception of Twist and Shout. I was going to say Twist and Shout, which was great, but their version is the definitive version. Definitely, but, but uh, yeah, like Money is yeah, a good example. Money, right? Um, right. Yeah, they're they're quite of Kansas City. Yes, there there are a few that. Um, they are weaker, weaker tunes in the Beatles catalog. But you know, again, like you said, the 
the producers, the the record label forced that on all new bands yep. in the sixties. Yep. So and, and probably one of I think the strongest songs that they wrote and one of the earliest songs they wrote is I Saw Her Standing There. Oh yeah. And I am choosing a cover of that by Little Richard. love the fact, first of all, that Little Richard was one of their biggest inspirations, and then they write a song, and then Little Richard covers that song. Now, it was 1970. It was much later that he covered it, but um, I love that. Um, Please Please Me was their first official album release. Of course, that was in England. It was two years before they would really kind of enter the American market, but um, Please Please Me, a lot of cover tunes, but you had some of the... I Want to Hold Your Hand wasn't even on that. That, no. that was later on. Yeah. Um, but I saw her standing there, just just a great song through and through. And um, it, it was it was really early when they were writing together more than they did later on. And and Paul came to, to John and, and said, hey, I have this song. And he started you know reading off the lyrics. And John started to laugh because one of the lyrics was, she was just 17, which we're going to talk about that in a second. Yeah. Um, not a beauty queen. <laughs> <laughs> and John started to laugh, said, no, that's not a good. So he goes, let's change it to you know what I mean. And Paul was like, but will they know what you mean? And he goes, no, but that's fine. We'll just say, you know what I mean, and let people, you know, fill in the blanks. So really, that didn't really mean anything. It was just John's way of saying it's a lot better than saying that she wasn't a beauty queen. Right. I just love when they would collaborate. Right. So... Um, Little Richard, it's a perfect song for him, especially with the woos, you know, the high oh, woos, yeah, those yeah, falsetto. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like it was written specifically for Little Richard. I think he does a great job with this song. Um, he, he takes it, and, and this, to me, would be the contrast if I wanted to, to show some of the difference between early rock and roll and Beatles early rock and roll. You can hear the difference when you play these two back to back. Now, yes, today the lyrics are a bit creepy. Um, I keep telling myself as I do with a lot of the songs from the 50s and 60s that are about Sweet Little 16 and Mm -hmm. She's Just 17 and all those songs, I keep telling myself that the singers are playing a character and the protagonist of the song is also a teenager. Oh, yeah. So Little Richard at the time, who was probably our age, (laughs) singing about She Was Just 17, uh, I just just hope that everybody knew, oh, yeah, he's playing the part of another 17-year-old. Well, they were writing music for... A teenage yes, audience. Correct. You know, correct. teenage audience being what it is, you know, the teenage boys are interested in 17-year-old girls. So. I mean, as late as uh, Abba's Dancing Queen and, and, and the Stray Cats. Um, uh, yeah. Christine 16 by, by Kiss, which yep. 
to me, I think that probably is <laughs> creepy. That yeah, one. <laughs> and the, like the Max Mishrona is another one that's a little yeah. too, too uh, but yeah, but like you said, um, she's sexy in 17 by the Stray Cats. Great right. example, right. you know. Um, now, I've never had a problem with that. I know some people do find it kind of creepy, but rock and roll was the, it, it, it belonged it was teenage culture, right? And, and which was entirely new. Teenagers did not have their own yes. culture, right. you know. And this rock and roll ushered in an entire movement. It, you know, Hollywood soon followed, and suddenly teenagers became empowered. They had a voice, and they had their own. You know, they, they were spending money that uh, had never happened before because they had never had money to spend anything on, and they had never had anything to spend money on. So. um no, I've I've never found that to be creepy. On but just today's audiences, of course, it's it's a lot different, right? It, it's no, it's like last week we talked about "I'm on Fire" from Bruce Springsteen and yeah. hey, "Hey, little girl, is your daddy home?" You know, terms like you know, "little girl" were kind of somewhat misogynistic, although at the time I don't think intended to be. But well, in the '60s, they certainly weren't. But but but, but you know, today it just sounds a little bit different. It, so it does. It's like anything else. It's no different than when we teach Shakespeare, and that's how many five hundred years removed. Um, kids can't even read it anymore. So yeah. that's what's going to happen to music, right? Um, assuming the world is still here in 100 and 200 years from now, people are going to listen to a lot of these lyrics and, and the meanings are going to be completely different. Yeah, it, it will be. Um, which is both thrilling and, and also kind of kind of a bummer, you know? Um, but they'll have their own music and, you know, music will evolve, so... All right. Yeah, I actually there are uh, quite a few early rock and rollers that have covered the Beatles. Elvis covered the Beatles. So so too did um Fats Domino. Yeah. His mm-hmm. version of Lady Madonna is is fantastic. I didn't include it because it sounds well like the Beatles, but it's yeah, a lot of them um have done so. And people forget that prior to the Beatles, I mean, there were some, Buddy Holly as one example, but most artists didn't write their own material. Correct. This was before the singer-songwriter of the late 60s and 70s. Well, you know, the, the pioneers, a lot of them did, though. Did they? Jerry Lee Lewis wrote his own, Buddy Holly, uh, Chuck Berry, um, Sam Cooke, Ray Charles. All right, prove me wrong. But, <laughs> but my point is... <laughs> El- Elvis did not. So but I'll it was it also one. a time when, you know, the, the, the Tin Pan Alley songwriters were still... Yeah cranking out music and the record company would would buy the rights to music and they would pair it with artists they felt fit. And so covers were a lot more common back then. Oh yeah. Right at the same time a song came out. So it makes sense that if you had the the rock version of Can't Buy Me Love that the teenagers were listening to, at the time the adults weren't listening to the rock version of Can't Buy Me Love. No. So to have Ella sing that song made perfect sense. Yeah. Because now uh, the parents and the kids have something in common. They both like the song, but they're by their perspective generational artists. Well, you know, early rock and roll too. I mean, it was so racially divided. Um, you know that that's how Cleveland has the rock hall because Alan Freed dared to play black music to a white teenage audience, and, and of course he coined the phrase rock and roll. But um, yeah, in race records, you know, there was the black chart, there was the white chart, and and really before Elvis, I mean. Elvis culturally appropriated without question, but he opened the door and allowed all these African-American acts to, to actually receive the recognition they so deserved. Right. But he didn't write, so that's a good example yeah, of... No, Elvis, almost his entire catalog was written by Lieber and Stoller. Right. Um, yeah, no, I don't... I'm not suggesting that everybody did. Right. But I'm just, I'm just saying, like that inaugural class of 10 in the Rock Hall, more than half, the Everly Brothers wrote their own, more than half of them wrote That's good. their own. Once you get into year number two... Not so much. 
See, but, that's where like like a uh, good example, Carol King. You know, she was a oh, yeah. songwriter. Yeah. And and a lot of people feel as a vocalist. Again, she's not a tip top vocalist. Obviously, she has a lot of character in her voice and a lot of passion. And so James Taylor, I believe, was the one that talked her into actually singing some of the songs that she had written. Yeah. And she had written songs in the late fifties, I believe, in the well, sixties. And, and if memory serves, he actually kind of coerced her. Yeah. He kind of like called her name on stage, and and kind of she she had no choice but to to get on the piano and, and sing, um, which uh, good for him. Yeah. And, and, great for her I mean you know Tapestry is still one of the greatest albums ever recorded I, I just love that evolution because it was all about the voice which which is fine but then with the singer-songwriters the voice wasn't as, as, as important right as it coming from the from the poet him or herself yeah right so Dylan didn't have to sound like Elvis <laughs> right well Dylan didn't sound like anybody so. <laughs> he sounded like Dylan <laughs> but, yeah. all right uh, all right well this is my number six my last one for side A you know, I already talked about it. it with a world record breaking 3,000 plus cover versions to its name and a simply staggering amount of amassed radio plays, it, it's, it's, it's kind of near impossible to imagine a world without the just the omnipresent brilliance of, of yesterday. It's, it's everywhere. And the anthem just seems like a song that has always been around, you know, and, and by no means does that blemish the artistry of the track. I think, on the contrary, it kind of defines the song as truly timeless. The list of artists who have covered this song is kind of a who's who of pop cultural icons. I mean, Sinatra, Ray Charles, Elvis Presley, Aretha Franklin, just to name a few. Just name all 3,000, why don't you? Well, yeah, yeah. You, you got a few hours. Um, <laughs> that might take more than a few hours. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. But for my money, folks, there is only one that truly comes close to matching the Beatles' original in poise and poignancy, and it's Marvin Gaye's version of this song. Mm -hmm. oh, yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now I need a place to hide away Oh, I, I believe in yesterday Suddenly, people ain't half the man I used to be, no. There's a heavy, heavy shadow over me. Yesterday came all too suddenly. Now, oh, why did she have to go? Something wrong Now I long, long, long For yesterday It is incredibly soulful. It's from the 1970 album, That's the Way Love Is. And Gay unlocks something spiritual in his recording. So spiritual, in fact, that even McCartney gives it a humble nod. Um, the track was written by McCartney, but credited, of course, to the Lennon-McCartney writing partnership. Uh, first released as part of the album Help, and according to folklore, McCartney composed the entire melody in a dream at the home of his then-girlfriend, Jane, Jane Asher. And you know what the uh, working title was? 
uh, scrambled eggs. Right. I think yeah. we talked about this a couple we, seasons we, ago. Yeah. So I want to put on the mentioned list the Jimmy Fallon, Paul McCartney version of scrambled oh, eggs. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that's kind of a cover. It is. Yeah. It is in a, in a very twisted kind of way. <laughs> um, but yeah, this song, it, it ranks among one of McCartney's best. And it's also heavily praised from across the critical world, of course. But, you know, despite its huge popularity, it is not McCartney's favorite song. He, he ranks it as number two. You know what his favorite song is? Have you ever heard? Let It Be? No, not Let It Be. Here, There, and Everywhere. Oh, yeah. Well, that that, his, that, a lot of people cite that as the yeah. greatest Beatles song. In fact, that was the only song that Lennon ever truly complimented McCartney for having written. And and McCartney, he's, he said uh, in interviews many times that that's his favorite. Yesterday, he actually has said um, that it's just, it's become cliche. It's so popular right. that it's just a song he shies away from now. It, you know, he said if it were not what it's become, it very likely might be his favorite song, but it's, you know, it's been taken from him. It's not his song anymore. You know what John's favorite, composi- of John's own compositions, you know what his favorite is? Oh, boy. Um, no. A lot of people would say, like, you know, in my life, which would be... That would have been, that'd be my guess. Help. Help, he felt, was help, the greatest really? thing he ever wrote. wrote. Huh. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's a great song. Interesting. Yeah, in an interview with Rolling Stone, okay, Sir Paul revealed that his favorite uh, was Here, There, and Everywhere uh, from from Revolver. But, you know, which out of the over 3,000 different versions of Yesterday that exists is McCartney's favorite? They asked him that in that same interview. And McCartney said, and he, he just admitted, you know, matter-of-factly, he said, I think I like Marvin's the best. Wow. So, like me, McCartney himself cites Marvin Gaye's cover of this song is is the best. You know, Gay uh, once poetically said of approaching covers, he, he said, I love this quote, I hope to refine music, study it, try to find some area that I can unlock. I don't quite know how to explain it, but it's there. These can't be the only notes in the world. There's got to be other notes someplace in some dimension between the cracks on the piano keys. So, you know, he, whenever he covered anybody, he always made the song his own which is what we were looking for for this episode. And he definitely does that with this song. He does. And you know, it's fresh. It sounds fresh. It doesn't sound like a stale no, lounge version no. of yesterday, and which it, there are hundreds of those. Exactly. And as an aside, speaking of Rolling Stone, speaking of Marvin Gaye, speaking of the Beatles, last year, Beatles fans were in a furor because Rolling Stone for years had Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in the top spot on their greatest albums of all time list. Last year, it fell to number two. It was number, Exile on Main Street, number one? No. Nope. No? It was replaced with Marvin Gaye's landmark album, What's Going On. Oh, yeah. And there has been a lot of debate, I guess, since that time. But while that debate over which album deserves the top spot will rage on for years to come, as all good musical debates should, there was a moment, folks, where these two juggernauts of pop culture met to create the most beautiful cover of yesterday. So, Very cool. There's my number six. Great. All right. This is my last one, my number six. I just got done saying about how basically every Beatles song that was a little bit out there, no, in "Got to Get You in My Life" isn't even out there, but um, a lot of Beatles songs were influenced by drugs, um, and a lot of the songs are about <laughs> you drugs. Think, you think <laughs> this next one is one that most people would say, "Oh, this one is for sure about drugs," and it's not. So I've already contradicted myself. I'm talking about Happiness is a Warm Gun. Warm Gun, yeah, yeah. Which was also off the White Album. Um, and this is a version by The Breeders. She's not a girl. 
the touch of a velvet hand Like a lizard on a window pane A man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots Lying with his eyes while his hands are busy working overtime His wife, which he ate and donated to the National Trust. It's a good version. It is. I was really blown away. The Breeders, if you're not familiar with the Breeders, because they're not as well known as, as some of the other artists at the time, um, Kim Deal, who was the original bassist for the Pixies, uh, had a side project with her sister, and um, they became the Breeders. And Kim eventually left uh, the Pixies, and now she continues to, to tour with the Breeders. I'm going to say it again. Uh, I got to meet them at a music festival. I got to meet Kim. She signed my set list. I'm very, very happy and proud of that. It's becoming a recurring theme in our episodes. Dave has I know. met all of these celebrities. No, no, not many. It's, that's why, because I've only met a few, and I get to talk about this. Um, anyways, this White Album track uh, is kind of a three-part composition by Lennon. It was inspired by a headline in the NRA magazine. Why John, maybe he was at the dentist's office and just picked, I don't know why John's reading the NRA yeah, magazine. Yeah, it seems kind of out of character for the man who wrote Imagine. As well as his new love for Yoko Ono. I think it's <laughs> funny that those two factors, a headline in an NRA magazine and his new love for Yoko Ono, inspired uh, this song. It, it is not about heroin. I can see how some people feel that when he talks about, you know, I need a fix, um, you know, Okay. Yeah. I, go ahead. I, I just gotta say, yeah. when we when we take the National Rifle Association and Yoko and put it in the same <laughs> sentence, there's a joke to be made there. But that was headline: happiness is a warm gun. Yeah, I, th- there's a joke to be made there. But I'm, I'm not going to be don't, that yeah, off color. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> so, but but John said something. It was kind of strange. He said, "There's something like when you, when you shoot something and kill something. There's a certain sense of like." I don't know, some like power, like you've, I, I couldn't quite understand what he was saying. Maybe he was, he was under the influence, but <laughs> he swears this one, and, I, and I, I, I'll, I'll believe him on this one. I'm going to call BS on, on Lucy in the Sky, but I'm going to say this is an interesting fact if indeed it had nothing to do with drugs at all, uh, and, and unless you consider love. A drug, right? Because I think that's the metaphor uh, here. I, I would, yeah. I remember my Certainly science addictive. teacher. I don't remember. I remember my science teacher in middle school for some reason was talking about this song. Maybe I was talking about it because that's about the time I discovered the Beatles. He said, you know that song, Happiness is Warm? I'm not, because that's about a joint. <laughs> so I always just assumed it was. Um, I love the Breeders version of the song and maybe even, I don't know. No, I still like John's version. It's just, this is very different. Yeah. And, and it's, it's in that, I, I, not that the Breeders are grunge, 
but it's in that Pixies style. Of course, the Pixies were a huge influence on, on grunge, but it's that Pixie style of kind of hard, soft, you know, fast, slow. Right. And they do a great job with that. Now, some of the listeners may ha- have heard some better known versions. Tori Amos uh, had a version. Hers is very political, though. Yeah. It's, it's a political statement. Yep. And, and you two um, had one. It was it was a B-side that was included on one of their B-sides. Um, I think it was the best of B-side collection. Um, and it was recorded by the breeders during that transition, like I said, from post-punk to new wave into this new world of alternative rock and grunge. And maybe that's why I like the White Album so much, because I was starting to listen to all of this new wave and, and post-punk alternative music. And, and, and to me, the Beatles were always, you know, this classic rock band that my dad and mom liked. But I heard a lot on the White Album that sounded a lot like the alternative music that I was starting to like. Oh, yeah. And that's probably, and I say now it's in my top three. When I was in middle school, the White Album was definitely my, my favorite. That was my favorite of all time at that time. And so that's probably why I liked it so much. Um, yeah, I have my note to, to, to brag again about meeting Kim Deal and I already did that. So I can skip over that. But no, it's a great version. And of course, we can only give you a portion of the song on, on the broadcast. Uh, hopefully you go listen to the Spotify playlist that we have on um, the website. Free, by the way. I know a lot of podcasts, in order to get the playlist, you have to be a Patreon member. We do not... Uh, charge you for that you can just jump over to our website and all of the playlists not only for this episode but for all other 58 episodes that we've done in two two seasons and two episodes are there for you to listen to and you know speaking of spotify we've we've kind of thrown it out there asked uh our our listeners in the past to to review us to rate us on on apple podcasts spotify actually has ratings as well and um i just became aware of this apparently it started last year but, uh, you know, always, if if a podcast has a higher number of reviews, higher ratings, it's, it's it, it helps them to grow their audience. So if you are a Spotify listener um, of, of the podcast, if you wouldn't mind, we'd, we'd appreciate the help if you'd give us, a, you know, yes. a five star uh, rating and. On, on Spotify, I didn't. I did not see any place for a written review. I think it's just, it's just strictly a star rating. And do you know, by the way, I think we're arriving. We're we're, we're becoming legit now. Because we finally got our first one star review. Did you see that on Apple? No, I didn't. Yeah, of all of our reviews, we had a we had a perfect five going. Right, and and of course, anytime you get more listeners, you're going to get someone out oh, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to believe that they were confused and thought one star was the best, <laughs> because now we have a four point nine rating. Because all star. they're all fives and one one brought us down to a four point nine. And we are amateurs to be sure, but I don't think we're one, I don't think we're one star material. That so hurts. either that was someone that that was a troll. Uh, they really, really hated us, or they thought uh, one was the best. <laughs> so help us get it up to a four point. It can never be five again, but help us get it to like a four point nine nine. <laughs> all right, that's all. Wow, no, I, I totally missed that. We have a one star rating. Damn. Yeah, no, it's, okay, it's, it's hilarious. Well, thank you. Um, for that, I guess. So, uh, well, that completes side side A. That's complete side our, A. Our artist spotlight, the Beatles. And look at that. We're right on time. You said we were flying through this episode. We're right where we need to we be. We are. Yeah. We're pretty consistent yeah. uh, in the past several episodes now. All right. You ready to close the thing? We'll close it. And, of course, we'll be coming back next week for side B. And that's all for this week. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now, press pause, lift that needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side.